Exodus 11, verse 1. And as we uh, relieve Darth Vader from the barrack chamber, <laughs> I have a barrack chamber. Uh, we will, uh, let me read that for you. Exodus 11. Then Yahweh said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man may ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for, for articles of silver and articles of gold. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses himself was very great in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the, of the servant girl who was behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But for any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may know how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my miraculous wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Now Moses and Aaron did all these miraculous wonders before Pharaoh, yet Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each to take, each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Verse four. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to apportion the lamb. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and then, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at, at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, and they shall eat the flesh that night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but... Rather, roasted with fire, both its head and its leg, legs along with its entrails. And you shall ne- not leave any of it over until morning, but what- whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now, you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh. And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, 
and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Moses is, is writing the story of the ten plagues, not merely to help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happen, but to help them learn to, to trust in their God, in the one who makes things happen in the first place, as a part of a, as a, part of a great redemptive plan for the benefit of his people. In chapter 11, we reach a, a pinnacle, a pinnacle moment between Moses and Pharaoh. Um, hey guys, can you uh, do that in the other room? Do you mind? Can you go downstairs? Paul, Paul, I need you to go downstairs and do that, please. Thank you. So, we've, so far we've covered plagues one through nine, and and those plagues, if you remember, were structured in a, in a triad of three plagues each. Each a triad demonstrated God's lordship over creation. God is lord over, over the water, plagues one through three, over the land, four through six, over the over the sky, plagues seven through the, through nine. And this, and by by this display of creation power, God has been making it clear that the Egyptian the Egyptian pantheon of false gods are simply nothing. The plagues also reveal the, the name of Yahweh to Egypt and the world as they pro- progressively weaken Egypt as a nation. Um, the, the plagues get worse successively as we move from plagues number one to plague number nine. And in the, in the last trio of, of plagues, God has revealed, remember if you were here last Friday, he's re- revealed his signature moves. Uh, the hail, uh, plague number seven, the locust, plague number eight, the darkness, plague number nine. These are all plagues where we're all the we're all miraculous uh, phenomena that we see there. We also see throughout Scripture, and it's all related to the day of the Lord. It's all related to the culmination of history. So whenever we see these 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 um, signature moves of God, the, the hail, the locust, the darkness, we are to be reminded first of Exodus and how God is 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 advancing His plan toward a second and final Exodus. Of Exodus and the redemption of God's people is the is the, the the preview of our final Exodus, and so in that way, then Exodus shows how uh, it is uh, the cornerstone of theology and Scripture, and we'll see more of that theme of of, of Exodus being the cornerstone of, uh, cornerstone of Scripture tonight. So in verses one through ten of chapter eleven, God gives His final warning to Pharaoh, and if you remember how chapter ten. Uh, ended, Pharaoh gets so frustrated with God and Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh, get, get out of my, uh, Moses, don't ever come back here. I'm, if you ever come back here again, you're gonna die. And so Moses said in verse 29 of chapter 10, well, just as if you, just as you have spoken, I shall never see your face again. Now, what's going on in verse 1, one through 10 though? Well, this is a continuation of chapter 10. This is not a, a, a Moses changes his mind or Pharaoh changes his mind. Uh, the verse one is a, a continuation of chapter ten, uh, and and uh, verse one we know that because of the grammar. The, the it begins with the word then. This is a in the Hebrew it's called a vavs consecutive. There's, it shows there's no break from verse one chapter eleven and verse twenty nine chapter ten. But the context also makes this really clear. So, so what happens in, in verses 1 through 8 is a continuation of the end of chapter 10. 
So presumably, as Moses says, fine, Pharaoh, I'm never going to see you again. I'm out of here. Um, uh, Yahweh says, not so fast, Moses, verse 1. Uh, before you leave for good, before you leave for good, I want you to tell him uh, uh, one more thing. Look at verse 11, uh, verse 1, verse chapter 11. Yahweh says to Moses, one more plague, one more plague. I'm going to bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Uh, this is the defining moment of this saga of redemption from Egypt. Now is the time God will uh, display uh, fully his power and his sovereignty. The, the, all of plagues 1 through 9 have been moving to uh, plague number 10. And, and now the form of punishment will be of such a magnitude that Pharaoh is not just going to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt and serve serve God, but what will Pharaoh do in verse 1? What, what, is, he, what is he going to do? He's not just going to uh, let them go or allow them to go. He's going to do what? Hey, he's going to make them leave. He's going to beg them to leave. He's going to drive them out. That's how thoroughly defeated uh, Pharaoh will be. See, if you if you fight against God, uh, brothers and sisters, you're not going to win. You are going to lose. Uh, take it from Pharaoh. Learn from Pharaoh, uh, the most powerful man in the world. This is the first this in history. Uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian dynasty here. It is the first of great superpower of world history. Uh, you will lose. You will lose. Uh, and Pharaoh is an example of that. Um, so, um, Pharaoh is, is not just going to let them go. He's going to make them go. And, and verses 2 and 3, we, we see something um, interesting. We see this distance between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. Um, uh, Yahweh says to Moses, uh, speak now in the hearing of the people so that each man may ask from his neighbor and each a woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. So, so in other words, Egypt, uh, they have, they have some common sense, right? Anybody so far with an ounce of common sense has long realized that resistance to Yahweh is useless. And, uh, it would appear in verses two and three that that the Egyptians had come to respect the Hebrews. They had come to uh, see Pharaoh's uh, policy of continued, continued resistance for what it was. It was fanatical. It was crazy. It was destructive. It was, it was hopeless. And they, they, they all, the consensus of Egypt in verses 2 and 3 were that they, they had, they had, they had a, a high respect for, for Israel. Um, they, 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 they were siding with Moses. And it says in verse, verse, uh, uh, verse three, that even Pharaoh's servants had a high view of Moses. This is a total victory. Even Pharaoh's own servants are on the side of Moses. And so, um, the people are going to are going to give uh, Moses and the Israelites silver and gold and, and provision for their journey. Uh, why? Verse 3 tells us why. 
because God gave the people favor so that when the Egyptians saw Israel, there was a favorable response. Uh, moreover, it says, verse 3, the man himself was very great in the light in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. All of Egypt, including Pharaoh's servants, respected Moses. They had a high view of Moses, and so this is why they were giving them articles of silver and gold and provisions for their long journey home. By the way, uh, if you've kind of been following some of the, the arguments, uh, you know, sadly in, in, in Christendom, uh, there is the, there's the, 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 some people kind of on the left make the argument for reparations, for reparations for African Americans, and they use this, uh, they use these verses. That the reparations, we see reparations that when Israel was enslaved, uh, Egypt gave them money and provision for their journey. But why do we know this is wrong? Because verse 3 tells us why they gave them money and silver and provision. It was a free will offering, and it was because they, they appreciated, they liked, the, they liked Israel. It, it wasn't uh, to, to, uh, uh, to appease any sort of justice. So, verse 4, uh, Moses uh, says to, to Pharaoh, uh, thus says Yahweh, now Moses turns around and, and speaks to Pharaoh. He says, about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. How is this kind of a new development uh, in the in these, in these progressing plays? Right, Yahweh himself is going to go, go out as, a, as opposed to what was the norm? What, what was the norm? You, usually, how would a plague start? Moses would raise the staff, right? He would raise the staff, and the plague would begin. And, and yes, God did all the plagues one through nine, but here uh, we see this accentuation of God's direct involvement in this la last plague. God will directly go out into the midst of Egypt, and He says in verse four, He's going to go uh, go out uh, in midnight. So. Any reason why midnight? Why why would midnight be? Why would he do this this last plague during midnight? Yes, yes, they would be because back then you, you fell asleep really early. It would be your uh, the point, the time of greatest vulnerability and defenselessness. And thinking from the, the point of the mercies of God. Uh, this is even though this this act of uh, judgment is severe. Uh, there's still a there's still a, 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 a an ounce of mercy. There's still a measure of grace here. That that instead of them grieving in the middle of the night, uh, you know, disheveled and confused, um, he does it at midnight so that they would be able to handle the grief in the morning. Makes made it make, made it a little bit bearable. Verse five. What is, what is God going to do in the midst of Egypt? He says in verse 5, Moses says to Pharaoh, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the ca cattle. So uh, God is going to humble Pharaoh in the worst of ways. Um, so let me, I, let me ask you an ethical question. Okay, um, that's fine that God is going to kill the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, 
But why, why does God need to kill everybody in Egypt's firstborn? How is that fair? Pharaoh's the bad guy. Why, why does everybody's firstborn have to die? There's a, there's a political theological aspect to this. Politically, yeah. he wants it to affect the society, so they all realize. True, true. Uh, theologically, very difficult to explain. I guess Jesus' answer to why the people died when the tower fell on them. Right. He told them, you're all going to die like that. Sure, sure. But that also explains that um, God used things not because that person did his actions. Even though Pharaoh is the one... Okay, that's part of it. That's part of it. But how is it even more obviously fair? How is it more obviously justice? Okay. Okay. So, what do you mean? All the firstborn males, right? Mm-hmm. And so, who who did that? Everybody participated. Everybody participated. When the firstborn in the beginning of Exodus were being thrown into the Nile, it wasn't Pharaoh single-handedly doing it. All of Egypt was doing it. They were all a part of the crime. And, and, you, and you see that now, right, uh, with Nazi Germany. A 95-year-old widow in some village, she's on trial because everybody was complicit in what Hitler did. Everybody. Everybody had a role to play. And so this was absolutely fair. This is a retribution. This is an eye for an eye. This is perfect justice. It was also a display of, remember, all the plagues were a display of God's power over Egyptians' pantheon of gods, right? Um, and so, uh, number 10, what god is he attacking? Sorry? No, he's attacking the, the, the last, last remaining god. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's firstborn dies. And he's saying, you know what? All your gods are nothing. And plague number 10, and you know what? Pharaoh, he's nothing too. He's nothing too. Uh, and so they all, uh, and remember, Pharaoh's job was what? To protect his people, to protect the, the, the children of his people. And God is saying, you know what? Your Pharaoh can't protect you. You're worshiping the wrong God. There's also the, the idea of a, Generally, corporate solidarity, what happens to the leader, happens to the people. The, the people are partially responsible for their leaders. You know, whenever some uh, horrible governor or senator wins the election in some state, I, I, I just say to myself, well, you voted for them. You know, you deserve whatever decision they make. And, uh, and so, so you have this, even though it is a dictatorship, and yet the people still have bear a responsibility. Now, why cattle? What 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 do the cattle have anything to do with it? (laughs) 
Well, it's hard for us kind of modern folk to understand this, but uh, for much of human history, there was a symbiotic relationship between humans and cattle. Um, cattle, if you remember, shared the six-day creation order with humans, so they were deeply appreciated in ancient times. Uh, I, I have a feel. I have a. I'm guessing that the veneration of cattle in India is like a is an extreme example of the veneration that ancient cultures had for their livestock. And so, if you wanted to fully humiliate Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the cattle would die too. The firstborn cattle would die too. Go ahead, Josephine. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So they had a high respect for cattle as well, high veneration. Um, and so God, to humble them, he kills the cattle too. Verse 6, moreover, there shall be a great cry. Where did you see that those words before? Uh, that, that, that word cry, you saw it back in chapter 23 when the Israelites were signed because of the slavery. And verse 23 says, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the slavery rose up to God. Verse 7, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Chapter 3, verse 7, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Same word there. Verse 9, so now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. And I've seen the oppression with the Egyptians which are oppressing them. So this is a, a if God is telling Egypt, you made, he's telling Pharaoh, you made my people cry, and, and now uh, your people will cry with it, an even greater suffering. Remember later on, Pharaoh wanted uh, Israel to cry out to him, and uh, now Egypt is crying out to, to Pharaoh. Um, he says in verse 6, uh, this was such a tragedy that there has not been before and such as shall never be again. In Egypt's history, I mean, there is just no parallel to this kind of sudden loss where all the firstborn children, all the firstborn cattle uh, perish, die in the middle of the night, all at the same time. Uh, I mean, this is huge. This is massive. I think, I, I, I don't know if I, I mentioned this before, I mentioned this a few times, I remember uh, watching a documentary on uh, cooking, a cooking, uh, this guy was traveling through Egypt and exploring the ways uh, different um, uh, different cultures cook their food. So this guy was just, I was just randomly watching this guy, and he was in an, in, in an Egyptian village, and he was watching them cook the food. And so first they cut the animal, and then you know what they did? They took the blood and they put it on the house. Put it on the house. And I was like, wow, that reminds me of the Exodus. And I, I can't prove it, of course, but uh, it would make sense. I mean, that type of event, uh, the word would go out, you know what? The Israelites, none of them died, and they had blood on their doorposts. And so you could see how this, uh, this kind of uh, pagan kind of theology would develop over time. But, verse 7. But, but, but for any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, 
so that you may know how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God makes a distinction between his people and those who are not people. He is sovereign over what will happen and will not happen. What's the significance of, it's kind of a minor detail, but what's the significance of, of, of the text saying, but, but for any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark? See, dogs back then, like dogs in most, country, in most countries, and, and I think rightly so, here dogs are like, you know, dogs, this, dogs are so nice. When I was growing up in Korea, you know what, dogs were just maybe a step above rats, you know, they, <laughs> you never, in Korea when I was walking, a dog never barked at you, because they knew that, 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 that they could be supper anytime really soon, so they were always afraid of humans. And so, uh, the, the point of, of verse 7 is saying that these scroungy, worthless dogs, not even they will bark. Not even these worthless animals will be bothered. That's how much the God makes a distinction between his people and, and Pharaoh's people. Verse 8. Then all these, your servants, Pharaoh, your servants will come down to me and they will bow themselves before me. I mean, this is humiliation. All of Egypt will turn against Pharaoh's authority and they will say, forget this guy, forget this guy on the throne. Please leave. Please go. In other words, Pharaoh, you're going to have, I'm going to strip you of all popular power. You will have no power after this. And then, verse 8, after that, after that, I will go out. When all your people Bow to me, then I'll leave Egypt. And verse 8, it says something really interesting. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Why was Moses angry? That's my first question. And number two, what is the significance of Moses' anger? Let's answer the first question. Why do you think... Uh, Moses was so angry at Pharaoh. Verse 8. So, yeah, so, so obviously, right? Good. Obviously, Pharaoh was angry because of, I mean, um, Moses was angry because of Pharaoh's stubbornness and pride and unwillingness to relent, that it, that it even has to go to the death of all the firstborn children in the entire in the entire land, and, that, and he's just angry at Pharaoh's sinfulness, right? But what does that signify, though, theologically? That Moses is angry, and remember, he's writing Exodus too. He's also the writer of Exodus. And what does he keep saying over and over after every play? He says what? God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so people will say, it's not, Mo- it's not Pharaoh's fault. It's not Pharaoh's fault. Uh, it's God's fault. God's the one who hardened his heart. But Moses, the author, is saying, by the time you get to plague number 10, 
Pharaoh is angry. I mean, Moses is angry at Pharaoh to show what? Culpability. The culpability of Pharaoh. So in Moses' mind, from his vantage point, he doesn't think, well, God is responsible for the evil. Even though he says God hardened his heart, God strengthened his heart. No. He sees the, the, the direct culpability. He, 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 he writes of God's sovereignty over the situation, but he also, by this statement that he was angry at Pharaoh, declares that Pharaoh, uh, this is, this is due to Pharaoh's sin. That, that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh's choices and his decisions brought this upon him as well. So, um, uh, one, one commentator says it like this. Since Moses knew about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right, he's the author of Exodus, Moses' anger, to be rational, must have been built on the belief that Pharaoh was accountable for his attitudes and, and actions. Uh, uh, Moses was not blame, blaming Pharaoh if when Mo, Pharaoh had no choice. That Moses held Pharaoh accountable here, even so late in the course of events, tends to undermine theories that free Pharaoh from responsibility because of the Lord's hardening his heart. And so, as I said, every time it says that God strengthened his heart, this was compatibility. Uh, Pharaoh wanted to go all the way. He didn't have the strength to do it. So God gave him what he wanted. And this is why Moses is so angry at Pharaoh, because of his uh, stubborn and sinful heart. So, verse 9 and 10 then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, uh, so that my miraculous wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Now Moses and Aaron did all these miraculous wonders before Pharaoh, yet Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Uh, we, we move to um, uh, uh, the second part of uh, the, 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 the text that we're going to cover today. And, and this is uh, verses 1 through 3, chapter 12. Israel's defining moment. And as we're going to see shortly, there's a lot of theology behind the instructions given here. And here, uh, uh, God gives the, the directions, the, the instructions for the Passover. And it's kind of, it seems kind of um, a weird place to put this in the story. But as we, we will see, it has a, a lot of significance. And so in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, Moses said to, uh, Yahweh said to Moses in Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So what is what is happening in verse 1 and 2? What is happening? God is changing what? He's changing the calendar year. So, this month uh, will be the first month of Israel's calendar. This will be the beginning of the, of the year for them to commemorate uh, the Passover, to commemorate what God does on the 10th plague when he passes over the sons of Israel. And, and, and this is a defining moment for Israel's existence. Um, think about it. Uh, if we uh, changed our calendar system based on a particular event, uh, that would be momentous. And what it's doing, it's it, it, the, the purpose of the Passover and the purpose of the change in the calendar, it's to say something 
about what Israel is about. This is who Israel is. And what are they about? What will their, even their calendar and what will this celebration uh, tell and how will this define Israel? It will say what? That Israel is all about salvation and deliverance. That this is their identity. That this is our de- identity. So we, uh, our big uh, national holiday is what? July 4th, Independence Day. And, it sh- and, it, and, and, it, and it's supposed to say that America is about freedom and independence. But and in a similar way, the Passover will show that Israel, God's people, they're about redemption. They're about redemption. And the Passover will teach important truths about this great salvation. Uh, the, the first truth that the Passover will teach about God's salvation for his people is found in verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of, of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, they are to take each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So the Passover will be corporate. Everybody will be, take part of it, but it will also be personal and individual. God saves the church, doesn't he? He will save Israel in the end times, saved Israel, but he also saves individual individuals and that's why they are to each one according to the each family are take to, to, to are to take a, a lamb uh, for themselves um verse 4 now if the household is too small for the lamb then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them according to what each man should eat you are to apportion the lamb so everybody is going to take a lamb Everybody's going to get their, everybody's going to get to eat. And this is a meal that will be a commemorative uh, feast. Uh, so some modern American holidays, they are feast holidays. And other holidays are not feast holidays. What are some examples of some American feast holidays? Thanksgiving, Christmas. What are some, uh, oh yeah, yeah. What are some holidays that are not feast holidays usually? President's Day, Labor Day, July 4th. Hot dogs don't count. Um, really Thanksgiving and Christmas. And what what is the difference between a holiday, a feast holiday, and a non-feast holiday? What's the big difference? Okay, yeah. But what else? Well, okay, yeah, yeah. But for a feast holiday, a big feast, what do you have to do? You have to plan. You have to plan Thanksgiving dinner. You have to say, what, who are we going to invite? What are you going to buy? And somebody says, I'll, I'll grill the turkey this year, you know. I'll get the charcoal, right? Uh, and, and so this is, this is a commemorative feast. They need to plan for this. They need to prepare for this. This is how important it is. You need to get a lamb. Prepare a lamb. And what kind of lamb uh, should it be? Look, verse 5. It shall be a male without blemish, a year old. And what is the this lamb that is going to be sacrificed? What does it demonstrate about Israel's salvation? What will it teach them 
about Israel's salvation? What will this sacrificial lamb teach them about salvation? That what? That you can't have salvation without a sacrifice. You can't have redemption without some something, someone dying. And it, it, it's without blemish, verse 5. It needs to be a perfect, it needs to be a perfect sacrifice. And, and a lamb about a year, is it a, a year old lamb, is it a baby lamb? No. Is it an old lamb? No. It's like a young lamb. It's a young, about a year, it's about a young, decent sized lamb, enough to eat. And we see, uh, in Jesus, he died a young, young, at 33, or, or age 30 or 33. And he was a perfect sinless sacrifice. And this qualified him to be the Lamb of God. And look at verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. So uh, from the 10th of the month to the 14th of the month, the the Lamb needs to stay with the family for four days. Uh, And and what do you you think is going to happen during those four days? Does she have kids? Oh, look at the lamb. You got a lamb? Day two. Oh, dude, I like this lamb. Day three. Day four, there's a bond there. And and then you kill it. I mean, just imagine your children's reaction. And it teaches you what about salvation? That's not just a sacrifice. But it's a costly sacrifice. It is a personal sacrifice. And it hurts. It hurts. There will be tears. There will be tears. And the slaughter, slaughter it at, at, at twilight. And it, it uses, these verses use, we see it says, until morning. And so you have creation language here. Salvation is cre- uh, connected to sacrifice and Creation is connected to salvation. You know, during this time would also be the full moon, so it would it would allow for maximum nighttime light for gathering and eating together. It would commemorate the full moon when when Israel uh, uh, fled from Egypt. And verse seven, we 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 learn more about salvation. We learn we more, learn more about salvation. Verse seven. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood. And put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses that cross me on the top in which they eat it. This is a picture of atonement. That salvation is about being covered by the blood of the sacrifice. The blood covers and blots out all of your sin and all of your shame. And this act by Israel will display their faith in God's power not only to kill but to rescue as well. And it'll be the first thing they do before eating the meal. This is the most important thing. That they are covered by the blood. And because they trusted in God's word about the blood, God will save them. Now, verse 8, uh, we learn more about salvation. They shall eat the, that, the flesh that night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why, why, why uh, eat the Eat the meat roasted. Uh, it says, verse 9, don't boil it with water. Um, why unleavened bread? Why this sort of, why does God uh, require this kind of preparation? What do you think? 
Right, right, yeah. And if you think about it, um, you know, having to get pans and boil the water and put it and skin it and put it in the water and boil it, clean the stuff, that takes longer too. So the idea is that there needs to be no hesitancy in trusting God and leaving. It needs to be quick. Because even, I mean, if you're, if you're in, in, if you're living in a place for a long time, 400 years, you're not going to want to leave. You're going to be like, oh, I like, I've been here so long. My family, my, my, my parents, my grandparents. And God says, no, you, this is an issue of faith. Do you really trust my word? You are need to, you need to leave Egypt immediately. And, and verse eight, he's fine. He's fine. Uh, verse eight, uh, they are to eat bitter herbs. Why do you think they need to eat bitter herbs? This would be a memory of what they were being saved from. They're being saved from, from the bitterness of slavery. Verse nine. Oh, verse ten. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever, whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. So God says, no, no, no turkey sandwiches, no, no turkey stew. Anything left over, you have to burn. To say what? Don't linger here. Don't go back. Leave and never come back. So you don't need food. You don't need leftovers. Verse 11. Don't focus on yourself. This is how you should eat it. It's not, it's not for you to just linger and, and enjoy each one, one, one another's company. No, you, you, you put your, you loin your gird, your gird, your loins, you put your sandals on your feet, you have your staff in your hand, you eat it quickly, because this is not about you. If this is not about you, you can enjoy yourself. You can take your time, have appetizers, have dessert. But no, this is what? It is the Passover of Yahweh. This is about Yahweh. This meal, this commemoration, this is all about God. And verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. See, this is the, the signature move of Yahweh's name, right? That we see in this 10th blood. Remember, in this 10th plague, remember what Pharaoh said initially? Who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. What's his name? In this 10th plague, God will, sh will reveal his name in a mighty way. That he is the what? The author of life and the author of death. He is sovereign over life. He is sovereign over death. And that we learn that the signature move is what? Salvation in judgment. We learn that God's, Yahweh's signature move, his, the, 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 the act by which reveals his character the most is how he saves sinners. And so we see how the name of Yahweh and salvation, they go together. And uh, salvation shows the otherness of God, the how he's he's unique. There's nobody like him. Nobody who has this kind of power and authority over life and death. And so when Jesus died, what did he die on? He died on the Passover weekend. Mm -hmm. Passover weekend. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. Mm -hmm. 
all the animal sacrifices on Good Friday were pointing to. So on Good Friday, as, as the people would sacrifice their animals, they were, they were pointing to Jesus' sacrifice that would happen hours later. And all those who trust in his blood, all those who cover themselves with the Lamb of God's blood, are saved from judgment. And the fulfillment of Jesus' sacrifice, the fulfillment of all the sacrifices of God's people in the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus' death on the cross, is celebrated in the Lord's Supper, right? So the night before he was crucified, Jesus was celebrating the Passover. They were celebrating the Passover. They were doing this. They were eating bitter herbs. They were eating unleavened bread. They were eating lamb, a sacrificed lamb. And then he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper that we celebrate once a month. And so that means what about the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper tells something about our identity. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring this is who we are. That we are about salvation. We're a salvation people through through Christ's death and resurrection. And so that theology of the Lord's table that we enact, that we display, that we celebrate once a month, when did it start? Back in Exodus, right? You see how Exodus is the cornerstone of all theology in the Bible. The cornerstone of theology in the New Testament. And so I hope that going through these first 13 verse, verses um, will help us appreciate the Lord's table more and remind us that we're not just kind of eating bread, unleavened bread and drinking wine just to do it, but to remind ourselves this is the kind of people we are. We're a salvation people. We're all about Christ's death and resurrection.